Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Today I want to talk about another one of our Christmas texts. Again, if you look in the New Testament, you're thinking of the birth narratives of Jesus or sort of the early part of Jesus' life. You really only have about four chapters that deal with that, and it's Luke chapters 1 and 2 and Matthew chapters 1 and 2 in particular. And I want to talk today about a clear path to Jesus, and it's really more the story of John the Baptist, whose life, as you know, is intertwined with Jesus, and there are prophecies about him that are intertwined with Jesus as well. A few years ago, a Kamloops man uh, lost his mother. Uh, She died, and uh, the funeral home had his mother's uh, SIN number. I I think up here you just call it a SIN number, right? I feel a little uncomfortable with that because when somebody asks me what's my SIN number, I'm thinking, I'm not sure, but it's pretty high. (laughs) I just... I have not gotten comfortable not saying, you know, S-I-N number. So uh, my SIN number admittedly is off the charts. I'm thankful for God's grace. The funeral home had this mother's SIN number. I'm sure hers was pretty low, actually. They ended up with his as well. I'm not sure why they ended up with his as well. Maybe because he's doing certain things for her. But I don't know why they needed that. But they ended up with his SIN number as well through the process of dealing with her affairs. Unfortunately, they gave the Canadian government the wrong SIN number. So at that point, Brian Kupiak of BC was officially dead. He called Service Canada. Their response, yes, you're deceased. His pensions checks stopped coming. He got a federal tax slip that read the estate of Brian Kupiak. So he's supposed to pay taxes on his death, and yet he's very much alive. His pension isn't coming anymore. The government's committed to his death Fortunately, at this point, he's been pronounced among the living again. Service Canada did not say how often this happens, but since I'm American, I can pick on our neighbors to the south. I can tell you how often it happens down there. 12,200 U.S. citizens are declared dead every year by the Social Security Administration due to keystroke errors. Those data entry people are really important, folks. In 2011, the Office of the Inspector General conducted an audit of the death master file and found that from May 2007 till about three years later, over 36,000 people had been added to the master file, making them legally dead. Those affected become like the walking dead, unable to secure a job, make financial transactions, file taxes, visit the doctor, and for months on end, they must endure the nightmare of convincing a large bureaucracy that they haven't yet bit the dust. These people think they are alive. There's evidence they're alive. They don't realize their reality. They think their lives are normal, but they're not. How about this man? Not dead, but you'll wonder why not. Construction worker Patrick Lawler thought he had a toothache. For almost a week, he tried painkillers and ice packs to reduce the swelling. When nothing he did brought relief, he finally went to the dental office where his wife works. Only after the dentist took an x-ray did Patrick learn the true source of the toothache. He had a four-inch nail in his head. When the dentist reported their discovery to his wife, she thought they were joking, but the x-ray revealed the truth. The nail had entered through the mouth, just missing his right eye. The incident occurred six days earlier. He was working with a nail gun that backfired. Although one of the nails shot into his mouth and embedded itself, he didn't realize it. 
He merely complained of a toothache and blurry vision. He even tried ice cream to soothe the pain. That's a good excuse to have a quart of ice cream. After the nail was discovered, surgeons at a hospital successfully removed it through four hours of surgery. Although it is a pretty rare injury, one neurosurgeon admitted, this is the second one we've seen in this hospital where the person was injured by a nail gun and didn't realize the nail had been embedded in their skull. So we've got people walking around who are dead and they don't know it. And we've got people shot with nail guns in the head who think they only need a dentist. This is a perfect illustration of our spiritual condition on the path to Jesus. See, the Bible says we're technically spiritually dead, even though we're walking. And Jesus alluded to this constantly. In his sermons, in his, in his parables, he would say things like, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he's talking about our spiritual deafness, how difficult it is for us to understand spiritual things when we come in contact with them. The parable of the sower, which we talked about a few weeks ago, is all about this. The four soils are representing four different kinds of hearts with varying levels of receptivity to God's word. It's what it's about. So the question Jesus would ask, you know, what kind of heart do we have? Do we have a heart that's good soil? Do we have a heart that's thorny soil, crowded out by the world? Do we have a heart that's like that hard soil where it seems like God's word penetrates a little bit and then it dries up? Or are we like the path where Satan steals the word of God right away? It has no chance to be embedded in our lives. Jesus talks about these conditions. Paul states it in theological terms. He says in Ephesians that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Our spiritual condition before Jesus is actually spiritual death. Spiritual death. So even when Jesus was on the earth, and this is what's important about this passage, even when Jesus was on the earth, and we are not Jesus, he faced people who, even with his miracles, didn't get it. He was actually rejected by most of the people he came in contact with, most likely. His miracles, think about this, his miracles in front of the crowds he was present with were not enough for many, even those who had overwhelming evidence of who he was. See, people have a problem sorting out Jesus in their lostness. We all have a problem sorting out Jesus in our lostness and even in our Christian faith. But for people who are lost in particular, there's layers of philosophical skepticism that overlays people's hearts and souls. For some people, it's the exclusivity of Jesus, saying there's only one way to the Father. That's just too narrow for many people. For some, it's the issue of epistemology, and people may not know what the word means, but it's how we know something is true, and we live in a world of pluralism and varying religions, and nobody wants to say there's absolute truth. For some people, it might be issues of origins and science and how old is the universe and believing that you have to have one specific view of that to follow Jesus, which I don't believe you do necessarily, but there's layers of philosophical skepticism. There's life experience. People go through suffering and pain, and there's a lot of research on this, that suffering and pain causes people to walk away from God because somehow in our souls, knit in our souls, there's a belief that the reality is if we have a good God, that good God should be giving me a good life because I'm a good person. That's how people reason. 
So life experiences that are painful, and brutal, and loss causes people to struggle with faith in God. And then I would say today, more than ever, we have moral disagreement with God. People struggle with the narrowness of God's standards. Personally, they struggle with it. When God asks them to live a certain way, they're like, no, that's not okay. That doesn't seem to fit into the culture today. That God is way too narrow. Or they might be narrow themselves, but have a problem with God's narrowness for other people. And so God is in all kinds of trouble. He needs a new PR department. He needs a new publicist because people can't accept the God of the Bible. And so even among young evangelicals, the thing to do is we're going to say we love God, but we're going to completely deconstruct this because we cannot handle it. So we're going to try to have a relationship with God, but ditch this. I'm not sure how you pull that off intellectually. There are barriers to believing in God and following him. God knew that showing up in history, think about this, God knew that showing up in history would be insufficient. That just sending himself into the human family in the person of Jesus would not be enough. Think about that. That it would not be enough to turn hearts toward faith. God knew that he himself would not be enough to ignite faith in people's hearts. Barriers were too many. Virgin birth wouldn't be convincing enough. The miracles wouldn't be convincing enough. Even with demonstrations of power over all things, it wouldn't be convincing enough. Jesus, even Jesus, God in the flesh, needed help to create a clear path into people's hearts. That's why there was John the Baptist. That's why prophecies of Jesus are intertwined with prophecies of another man, a prophet, one who would clear the path for Jesus, one who was talked about multiple times in the Old Testament. His whole life's purpose was to get people's hearts ready for Jesus, to get rid of those layers of skepticism that God knows are embedded in people's hearts. And so in John the Baptist, we have what I like to call the other Christmas miracle. And I want to read that with you a little bit. It's in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, which is on page 43 of your New Testament. So if you want to grab the Bible in front of you, about three quarters of the way through, we have the New Testament. Starts over with page one. We're on page 43, Luke. Luke chapter one. We're going to begin in verse one. Now I love this, and we're going to talk about it in a moment, but when you're listening to Luke talk about how he put together his, um, his two books, actually it's Luke Acts, he wrote a couple of books, and so he wrote Luke Acts, and I just want you to look at how he researched to give us the portions of scripture that we get from him. Because often we wonder, you know, how do we get the Bible? I want you to see how he thought about what he was doing as he gave us these two books. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, in other words, he's one of many writers, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order. So he's trying to do more of a chronology in his work. Most excellent Theophilus, the person he's writing to so that you may know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. Sometimes that's translated so that you may be certain 
saying, I'm writing history so that you can be certain about what you believe. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, so she's the daughter of a priest. Her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your petition has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you'll give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he'll be great in the sight of the Lord and he'll drink no wine or liquor and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Now the no wine or liquor, what God is saying here, he's probably going to fulfill the Nazarite vow, which was sort of what some prophets did in the Old Testament. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedience to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, how, is, how will I know this for certain? I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. I love this. An angel is appearing to him. How am I really going to know this? Can you give me a sign? It's like, duh. That's not in the Hebrew. That's... The angel answered and said to him, I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. I don't like being questioned. I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zechariah. They were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he'd seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant and she kept herself in seclusion for five months saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor on me to take away my disgrace among men. Three simple points from this passage. God keeps his word again another prophecy is fulfilled. Now some have counted the prophecies that relate to the Messiah in the Old Testament. By one, uh, by one count, there's 456 prophecies relate to Messiah, I believe, that were fulfilled in his coming to earth. But this is one of the key ones. And I love how Luke begins his gospel, which I alluded to uh, just a few moments ago. It, because it's a rare view into how we get the scriptures. Sometimes we have, we have the impression that God showed up and he tapped some prophet in the Old Testament on the shoulder and said, I'm just going to dictate the Bible to you. And there might actually be parts of the Bible where that actually is true. But this isn't one of them. Luke is a medical doctor. He's a researcher. And he actually talks about the process of his research here. He wants more of a chronological account. Some of the gospel writers are written, uh, write more thematically. They'll group things together, not in order of sequence. Luke is saying, I kind of want to give you a chronology, beginning to end, and that's more the way he writes, Luke and Acts. 
He knows about key eyewitnesses to be interviewed. In fact, he has a lot of unique information in his gospel that isn't possessed in the other gospels. So he knows about eyewitnesses, that he needs, he needs to go to their little homes and he needs to visit them. He needs to get the research done. And his purpose in doing all of that was so that the person he's writing to, Theophilus, and now us, could be certain of the things that we're looking at here. He says, people have a right to know. This shouldn't be mythology and exaggeration. He says, I want you to be certain about what you believe. He viewed himself as a writer of history, as did all of the writers of the Gospels and the rest of Scripture. The miracles are facts. They're historical facts. The unexplained phenomena are simply recorded as observed by multiple eyewitnesses, and they are miracles. Luke alone gives us the early life of this John the Baptist, this prophet that comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's talked about multiple times in the Old Testament. So John, who we know as John the Baptist, not the gospel writer, has to show up. Think about this. He has to show up for Jesus to be legitimate. He is a major prophetic fixture. The last words of the Old Testament were Malachi 4, 5, and 6. If you don't have a John the Baptist intertwined with the life of Jesus, Jesus is illegitimate because these prophecies are intertwined. Here is what Malachi 4, 5, and 6 says. These are the last words uh, in the Old Testament. If I can just get that up on this. There we go. Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Now, what's interesting about that, the great and terrible day of the Lord, it shows you that from an Old Testament standpoint, when the Messiah shows up, it's the end times. All right, because it's called the great and terrible day of the Lord. So they're expecting judgment, you know, God sort of sorting out the good and the bad and Messiah reigning on earth. They didn't see a first coming, Jesus leaving, and a second coming. And this verse sort of betrays that. They saw Jesus as the beginning of the end times. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. It's talking about this prophet. Luke quotes this passage. John the Baptist fulfills this promise. He's going to create this new spiritual climate. Now, the meaning here is a little unclear. Normally, that's instead children to their fathers. Sometimes it's parents. Sometimes it's fathers, depending on the view of the person translating. The meaning is a little unclear, but it likely refers to the forefathers who would theoretically be proud of this generation listening to John the Baptist and turning their hearts. We're not sure exactly what's meant there. Every gospel writer recognizes the need to establish John the Baptist. Every one of them. They don't skip over him. He's a big deal. Matthew 3.3 quotes Isaiah 40, the other primary passage about John the Baptist, which we'll look at later. Mark 1, 2, and 3 quotes Isaiah 40. John 1.23, John the Baptist himself quotes Isaiah 40, saying, I am this guy. Luke chapter 117, which we alluded to, quotes Malachi 4, which we just read, and the last phrase of it is a quote from Isaiah 40. And later in Luke 1, verse 76, which I'll read later, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, quotes from Isaiah 40 and recognizes his son will fulfill it. Another prophecy is fulfilled. Without it, and this is the key, Jesus cannot be the Messiah and Son of God. 
His life is intertwined with this prophet who's going to help remove the skepticism and barriers in people's hearts to the truth. Second, Christmas involved not just one, but two miraculous conceptions. Now, they're not the same, but they were both miracles, different kinds of miracles. I love this story. Luke begins by giving us the background on Zechariah and Elizabeth. They both came from priestly families, good families. Back then, being in the clergy, if you will, being a priest was not a calling, but a family destiny, a sort of part of being in the family business. If you're one of the sons of Aaron, you're in the priestly family. You couldn't be a priest unless you were in the the group, the family, the clan, the sons of Aaron. It's interesting that Luke points out that they were both highly ethical people. So right away in his gospel, he's saying, you know, both Zechariah and Elizabeth are just blameless. And what's interesting is we know the motivation for saying that. He felt that need because Elizabeth was infertile. And in that culture, people would actually assume it was because of divine judgment. Like if if you couldn't have kids back then, they'll assume, well, you must have done something wrong. In fact, this was so serious in that culture that Zechariah would have been encouraged by his fellow priests and others to divorce Elizabeth because this was, if you were infertile, it was the blame the woman culture. Nobody told the guy to go to the clinic and be tested. They just assumed it's the woman, of course. And Zechariah would have been encouraged to divorce her, marry somebody else who would have children. And so Luke is pointing out, wait, these were both blameless blameless servants of God, both from priestly families. So Zechariah is one of 20,000 priests, roughly, in that era. There were about 20,000 priests. That was more than they needed. There were 24 divisions of about 1,000 each. So 24 divisions. He was a part of the Mountain West Conference. 24 divisions. Thank you. Three of you thought that was funny. We're we're going to keep working with you. All right. Maybe it's the material. I get that. Maybe it's the messenger. 24 divisions of almost 1,000 priests each. Now, that's way too many because they only serve in the temple. So each division serves the primary three weeks when they have big feasts, like you know Passover, Pentecost. All the priests come into Jerusalem for that. Many priests lived in Jericho because it was only about, I think, 17 miles away. So a lot of priests lived in that region because they served these various weeks of the year. Three uh, weeks that were festival weeks where all of them were called upon, and then two other weeks where their division of about 1,000 would serve throughout the other you know, 48, 49 weeks of the year. Duties were chosen by lot because they have way too many clergy. So basically they would go around, they would enter maybe in the morning, they'd get up early, go to the temple, and, and they would go in the hall of hewn or the hall of hallowed hewn stone. It was a special place in the temple. They'd probably gather in a circle there and they would cast lots to determine who would have the various responsibilities during that week of service. So Zechariah leaves the hill country of Judea, probably the dark of night, gets to the temple. He's in that hall of hewn polished stone, and he is chosen by lot to burn incense. That happened twice daily. There would be a burnt offering, a meal offering, and incense. And a priest would go in there after the offerings, burn the incense, and pray for Israel. Many priests, probably most priests, were never chosen for this duty because you only had two guys a day. You have, you know, 20,000 priests, two a day. So if you were chosen, you could actually never do it again. It was like a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So after the sacrifices, Zechariah enters the altar area to burn incense 
begins some probably formalized, memorized prayer for his country. And then it happened. An angel appears. Gabriel appears right next to the altar. Now, in that culture, when you start seeing an angel and you're by the, you know, the altar, it's not necessarily a good thing. When, when you go to the altar and you burn incense, you don't really want anything to happen. You want it to be boring, all right? Angel shows up in that culture, you're thinking, I'm dead. In fact, remember on the Day of Atonement what they did with priests who went into the Holy of Holies? Remember what they did? They would tie a rope to their leg and put a bell on their robe because they thought if God judges them and kills them, we need to know that it's over. We can drag him out by his foot. This is actually in the Old Testament. They did that with priests. So you have an angelic vision next to the altar. It's not necessarily an exciting thing. So Zechariah is terrified. And the angel says his promise or his, uh, his prayer has been answered. Now, not the prayer for Israel necessarily. He's talking about the other prayers that Zechariah and his wife have prayed probably thousands of times. It was the prayer for a child. So Zechariah begins to question Gabriel, which I alluded to before. Gabriel really didn't appreciate that. Zechariah knows their age, though. He knows his body. He knows the body of his wife. And what he basically says to the angels, he uses terminology that is used of the 60 and over crowd, basically. He's using a term that refers to a senior citizen in Israel. And he's basically saying, Gabriel, we get seniors discounts, you know? We live in a Dell Webb community. That's down in the States, retirement community, sorry. You probably got them up here. You know, if you're an angel of science, you should know that this isn't possible. My wife is postmenopausal. Do you know what that means, Gabriel? I know we don't view angels as sexual beings, but do you understand? Three words, menopause. That's what he said to Gabriel. That's in between the lines there. Gabriel was not appreciative of that at all. I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, because you didn't receive it in faith, you're gonna be silent and unable to speak. Your wife's prayers have been answered <laughs> till the day when these things take place. Because you didn't believe my words which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zechariah, were wondering at his delay in the temple. You know, we should have put the rope on his leg. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. She kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor on me. To take away, notice what she calls it, my disgrace because of this infertility, my disgrace among men. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David and the virgin's name was Mary and coming in he said to her greetings favored one the Lord is with you but she was very perplexed at this statement and kept wondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you'll name him Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, again, same chapter. Zechariah says, how am I gonna do this? My wife is postmenopausal. Mary says, how is this gonna be? I'm a virgin. 
See how these miracles are side by side and intertwined. Two impossible situations. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Behold, even your relative, your cousin Elizabeth, has also conceived in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. That statement, nothing will be impossible with God, is a reference to what just happened to cousin Elizabeth and her pregnancy and now what's going to happen with Mary in this virginal conception. So Zechariah goes home after his service in the temple. I'd love to have been a mouse in their house. I mean, think about it. Did he tell her? Or did he just laugh to himself through date night? The pregnancy? Morning sickness? It's the other Christmas miracle. These two men, even in their infancy, their lives tied together in this small family. Cousins. Third, the forerunner for Jesus was born and everyone needs one. Luke 1.57, now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth. She gave birth to a son. As Zechariah is inspired by the Holy Spirit to prophesy about this son, he says in verses 76 and 77, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. John probably preached to tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. He was a big deal. Many thought that he was the Messiah. He handed off his followers to Jesus. He had baptized them, not as a sign of Christianity or following Jesus, he had baptized them as a sign of repentance. Repentance because he was helping them understand the barriers between themselves and God. He got their hearts ready for Jesus. He didn't, he couldn't save anyone. He wasn't the God-man Jesus. But he cleared the path because of all the barriers that exist in the human heart. John fulfills Isaiah 40, three through five, and we're gonna put that on the screen. This is the key passage that he fulfills that is usually referenced in the Gospels. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed." And all the people shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The prophet is describing here an ancient civil engineering project. That's what this is. Whenever a king would pass through a territory, roads were built, hills were leveled, valleys, holes were raised. That's what this is about. It's ancient civil engineering. And what, what, the, what the prophets are talking about, what the gospel writers refer to, is this metaphor for what needed to happen in people's hearts for them to be receptive to God. John the Baptist would come and get people's hearts receptive to the Messiah, Jesus. Everyone in our lives needs this same heart work done, this civil engineering of the heart, before they can be open to the truth of God. And there's a lot working against us. A flawed nature. We enter 
the human family with a flawed nature. We're sinners before we even start the activity. But when we have that flawed nature, it means we don't have objective thinking about spiritual things anymore. We can explain away the evidence. We can resist truth to protect our way of living. We're flawed. We're not spiritually neutral or objective. There's Satan, who is a real spiritual being who thwarts God's kingdom, and he is the champion of false religions and everything else that competes with the kingdom of God. There's the flesh, our human weakness. Some say the flesh and the flawed nature are the same thing. Others would say the flesh is our human body trained by a flawed nature. Either way, the flesh is a weakness. There's the world, the philosophical system, which is organized against God. It's the water we swim in. It's the environment that, frankly, when we admit it, we all want to fit into. But we can't sometimes and follow Jesus. It's our spiritual death which Paul uh, talks about, which we talked about earlier, that before Jesus we're spiritually dead, we'll, we'll never get there without the aid of the Spirit of God enlivening sort of the image of God in us and causing us to search for him. It's our ability, even after faith, to quench and resist God's Spirit. We still have free will, and many of us exercise it in very unfortunate ways. It's our experiences and our flawed expectations about the life that God should give us and how unfair things have been to us and how God, a sovereign God could have prevented that. Therefore, I'm going to blame him for everything, even if he didn't cause it. There's a lot that keeps us from being open to God. Think about this. Right now, Christianity around the world is having a terrible time maintaining the faith of Christians. Forget the unbelieving world for a second. Right now, Christianity is having a terrible time keeping the faith of its own alive because of how difficult it is for God and his word to fit into the culture that we live in. Of course, it's even harder to open new hearts to truth. So if Jesus needed help, while he was present with humanity, how much more do people today need help to have their hearts opened to God? I want to close with five real quick bullets, and these are bullets, they're going to be fast. A clear path to Jesus apps. First, you're John the Baptist for a group of people in your life. First, we need to be intentional because you have a major role. Now, I, don't, I hope I don't have to convince you of this, but I'm just going to say it. I can't think of anything more important than helping people come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ to, eternal, to avoid a Christless eternity. I can't. I can't think of a more important work for the church. I, I can't. If you can, you can let me know afterwards what that would be. You have a major role. God saves people. But new Christians have had many contributors along their journey not named God. Only God saves. But what brings people to faith are the many people along their journey, which means if we're going to reach people with the gospel, we need to walk into that sphere of our Christian obedience knowing we need to be intentional. It doesn't just happen by accident. 
And the first part of that is know people who need Jesus. It's not rocket science. It's, it's a little bit of a numbers thing. You run into enough people out there who don't know Jesus, some of them will be open to it. But do you have those people in your life? I'm looking for this all the time in my life. Dee Dee's looking for this all the time in her life. I look for people I can assign to Dee Dee. Know people who need Jesus. And then take the long look. You know, you can be a great friend as a Christian, but nobody wants to feel like you're their spiritual project. You know, you're their religious conversion project. And just recognize how you need to take the long look. You know, if you have a person who's in you know, a, an atheist, and they're, you know, they're a minus 10. They're hostile to God, both intellectually and in their heart. They're an atheist who had a bad life experience before atheism. So they're hostile to God from their life experience. They're hostile to God philosophically. They're sort of a minus 10 on the scale, if you will. And when you get over to zero, that's a point of faith. So you've got a real hostile person. They're a minus 10. A zero is a point of faith. You know, over here, a plus 10 would be a person going to heaven fully sanctified. You know, Billy Graham, you know, maybe a plus 8. Dee Breshaber, plus nine, because she's married to me. We're working in this minus 10 to zero category. And your job is not to save anybody, but your job is to take a minus eight to a minus six. To take a minus five to a minus three. By being in somebody's life and demonstrating Christian love and talking to them, help them understand that they're normal people who believe in this God. I guess it's not so crazy after all. And you model that for them. Take the long look. Just move people one or two steps closer to Jesus. Demonstrate love while answering questions. As you get to know people and as you're in their lives, they're going to have questions about your faith. Faith is sociological, faith is intellectual, and faith is spiritual. There's been a lot of work done on the sociological aspect of this. The simplest way to say it is it's most likely your kids are going to be Christians because you're a Christian. There's a sociological impact, but it goes much beyond that. We don't have time to talk about it. But people need to see that other people believe. It helps them. Faith is also intellectual. They're going to have questions along the way. They're not just going to want to believe because you're their friend. They have questions. They need them answered. That's the intellectual side of it. And faith is spiritual. They need a heart change. And if you demonstrate love and stay in people's lives and answer their questions, you will see fruit. And it will be the most exciting thing that you are ever a part of as a Christian. And finally, be the best version of Jesus that you can be. Joshua Bell emerged from the metro and positioned himself against the wall beside a trash basket. By most measures, he was nondescript, a youngish white man in jeans, a long-sleeved T-shirt, and a Washington Nationals baseball cap. Sorry to you Blue Jays fans. From a small case, he removed a violin. Placing the open case at his feet, he shrewdly threw in a few dollars in pocket change as seed money, and he began to play. For the next 45 minutes, in the Washington, D.C. metro on January 12, 2007, Bell played Mozart and Schubert as over a thousand people streamed by, mostly hardly taking notice. And if they had paid attention, they might have recognized the young man for the world-renowned violinist that he is. They also might have noted the violin he played, which was a Stradivarius worth over $3 million dollars. It was all part of a project arranged by the Washington Post, an experiment in context, perception, and priorities 
as well as an unblinking assessment of public taste. In a banal setting, at an inconvenient time, people going to a baseball game, would beauty transcend? Just three days earlier, Joshua Bell sold out Boston Symphony Hall with ordinary seats going for $100. In the subway, he garnered about $32 from 27 people who stopped long enough to give a donation. Isn't that interesting? One of the best in the world, unrecognized and passed by. Well, we serve the master. He plays the Stradivarius. He is the man. He is the God-man. But he is not in his stage, in his theater anymore. We are in his place. We're the symphony. We're the violin he's playing. Do others see him through us? Do others hear him through us? Because we cannot afford to have them walk by and not know the message that we carry. Too much is at stake. God, we thank you for your word. And these are not the joyful realities of Christmas, but the realities of Christmas, because it's why you came. And so this prophet comes along with Jesus to prepare people's hearts, which demonstrates how important it is that we do the same as we try to reflect God to this broken world. May we be like John the Baptist. May we be the kinds of people who reflect who you are so as they continue to learn about you, their hearts are more receptive. They're ready to cross the line. Help us, use us in that process. For each one of us, whether it's just not having enough people in our lives who need you or whether our hearts have grown a little cold and distant about that whole issue, I just pray that each of us would take a step this week, this month, this season towards being used in that great process for which you came to redeem a lost humanity. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.